Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together welcome to another edition of the publicly challenged podcast i'm your host clay bowers and i'm here joined with luke oswald and sam thayer sam thayer is a world-renowned wild foraging expert and we're going to have him on today to talk about a different subject a subject that i have known he is an expert at for many, many years, but most people do not, and that is hunting. Sam, please introduce yourself and please just segue us into uh, some hunting stuff. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, and I didn't know I was an expert at hunting until right now. But I've been <laughs> hunting since I was 13 or so um, and uh, enjoy it very much. So um, you gave me an, uh, a prompt, but, but I don't <laughs> yeah. remember your prompt or what's my, uh, okay. so just tell, just tell us about, um, you know, what got you into hunting? Why we, uh, why we as foragers maybe are missing part of the equation while we're, uh, while we're out there only foraging and why maybe hunting even for small game is necessary. Well, you know, what got me interested in hunting was that I had uh, a mother that did not like to cook and a dad, a dad that couldn't cook. So, um, I, my mom rarely made meals. It was just cereal, cereal. I had enough calories, but I craved vegetables and meat. So that's why I became a forager and a hunter. Um, and so I, I would see a rabbit and think I want to eat that thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I would see a morning dove and think if I could catch that, I would eat it. And so the very, at a very early age, it set me down this path of, of how do I catch animals and eat them? And I got very good at catching animals without spending money, you know, without equipment that cost anything. 
Um, so things like catching crayfish with my hands, which I'm still pretty good at catching turtles with my hands, catching frogs. Um, I don't, I liked to catch snakes as a child, but we never ate them. Um, uh, I have, I've eaten a snake a couple times and it's, it's pretty good, but I have trouble killing a snake. Um, but, uh, you know, so I started bow hunting for deer because I couldn't afford a gun as, you know, a teenager. Um, and, uh, you know, so I made wooden longbows, uh, and then I sort of went from there to cheap guns and, um, I still hunt with a cheap gun. Um, <laughs> so and, <do> I. <laughs> uh, I started, uh, hunting small game with, uh, a hand-me-down, uh, 16 gauge shotgun. That was my dad's and my grandpa's before that. And then that thing, the sock was connected to the barrel by duct tape, literally, um, and it would misfire like half the time. So eventually I got this, someone uh, felt sorry for me and gave me this um, single shot 12 gauge, which I hunted with until I was like, you know, 21 and I had money to actually afford. I bought a 30, 30, and then I bought a 20 gauge. Um, so, uh, yeah. So for me, hunting was just a way to get meat, mm -hmm. a way to get protein in my diet. And, you know, I, uh, I feel like, you know, as a, as a, as a forager, as a plant gatherer who writes about edible wild plants, people often assume that you must not be a hunter. You're a vegan, right? I've been asked that question hundreds of times. No, I'm not a vegan. I have nothing against vegans and I've eaten vegan for fairly long periods of my life. But my goal as a child was to hunt and gather for as much of my food as possible. That was like my dream. That was my fantasy. And, you know, today, if you want to be a vegan, it's, sort of possible because you're having uh food shipped in from all over the world all sorts of continents and and you know but there's there's few if any locations in the world where you would actually have access to high protein high calorie um relatively easily digestible plant foods that would allow you to eat a vegan diet if you were hunting and gathering or gathering all of your food from one location um, and there's no known human culture that has ever had a hunting and gathering diet like that, that focused exclusively, sorry, I keep saying hunting and gathering, but a ga exclusively gathering diet. You know, every human culture known uh, that was not agricultural ate a substantial amount of meat. It may have been 90% of the diet. It may have been 20% of the diet. Um, but that's kind of like the parameters that's there. You know, um, it was never 0%. Um, and so I was searching for something that I could do, you know, mm. uh, myself and, and vegan doesn't work for that kind of a diet. Um, you have to have some animals. And also, um, once you start eating animals, um, and you feel yourself connected to the circle of life around you, it's not a moral issue. Like a lot of, a lot of people say they're vegan because they have a moral issue with killing of animals. I don't, um. And part of that, I think, is fear of death themselves, right? People can't accept death. And so one way to deny the eventuality of their death is to deny death as they go through life. Um, life and death are the same thing. We cannot have one without the other. Um, we are supposed to die. We're programmed to die. Our bodies are programmed to die. Um, and so are, you know, the wild things that we eat. And I'm fine with eating them. And I know someday I'm going to die and then something's going to eat me, hopefully. <laughs> and I don't mean I'm hoping it's a bear or a wolf. Mostly because the outcome might be bad for the bear or the wolf, you know, if they were to eat me. But um, in that, hopefully, you know, microbes and, and other things will eat me and return me to the soil. 
Oh, I think I actually hope that a bear or wolf actually consumes me and it's okay. Like it's not a modern setting to where we're back to primitive to where I wander out in the wilderness, lay up against the tree. And next thing you know, I pass and a bear eats me. That's, <laughs> that's an ideal setting. I think <laughs> that would be okay with me. Yeah. Totally okay. But I would just be afraid of what would happen to the bear after that. Like, like it, you know, you know, if, if people found out that I got yeah. eaten by a bear, you know, if they found my half eaten body, you know, <laughs> right. somebody might go after the bear. That's my only yeah. worry. I'm fine with giving um, my flesh to a bear. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to so, rewind yeah. real quick though. You said you started making your own self bows. So how, how did that come about? Was it something that you met somebody along the way? They showed you how to make it. You just said, I'm going to pick up a book. I'm going to make a self bow. And then what was the success rate with that? Well, you know, I don't know where I first got the idea. I think every little boy knows it about bows and arrows. Right. I don't, you know, I have no idea. And I started making really lame bows and arrows um, when I was like, you know, eight or 10 years old and they gradually got better. But when I was maybe 12 or 13, I discovered, oh, there's books about how to do this. And so I, and then I just discovered, oh, you actually need tools and those tools cost money. Um, but I still have the, some of the same tools I bought when I was 14 or 15 to this day. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would go to the library, check out what books, whatever I could, there was nothing, no online back then, but I had a few books that gave me some ideas. I started making my bows. I use white ash and hickory. Um, and, uh, I started making my own strings when I was maybe 16, um, swamp milkweed. Um, so I, I tried to make everything, but I ended up mostly buying my arrows and my success was not very good. Um, you know, I always felt like my range bow hunting was like 12 yards, maybe 15. Um, I was always setting up, uh, uh, sitting in a tree. I never set up a stand, but if I was going to sit in a tree over a deer trail, I would like to be about eight to 10 yards from that trail, my ideal shooting distance. Um, and I never killed a deer with my bow. Um, I shot small game, but not with great success just occasionally um i shot at a few deer and missed nervous shaking from my teenage buck fever <laughs> and all that um but it wasn't until um i started hunting with a, a uh, well a shotgun first that i actually managed to kill a deer um when i was 17 with a shotgun yeah well, that like was a slug yeah and that was hunting in a part of the state where rifles weren't legal at that time mm. So like Southern Wisconsin, where it's more populated. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we, we have those same rules here in Michigan, you know, lower half is a uh, shotgun only. I feel like some people get around it though, with the um, Sabo slugs that shoot like a, over a hundred yards, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never <clears throat> used those. Um, they were just starting to come out about the time that, that mm. I was hunting with slugs, but I, Wisconsin has taken most of the slug only zones and made them okay for, for rifles. Yep. Okay. Illinois has done the same. Now it's like a single shot rifle, certain calibers, all that kind of stuff. So it's, I think a lot of places are evolving and adapting to that and trying to transition and just make it a higher success rate, really. Yeah. I also think that hunters have been more responsible in the last 50 years. So rules are changing. I <laughs> mean, the number of fatalities from hunting is just dramatically declined. So in the 1960s, people were a lot more scared of having people with rifles around than they are today. I mean, you can see that with all the states that have eliminated their back tag requirements for deer hunters, because, you know, it used to be this kind of attitude that deer hunters were bad. They were likely to break the rules. So they needed a license plate on their back. And most states have gone away from that now. Hmm. 
I did not know that. <laughs> um, so one of the reasons that oh, I Clay, you never had to wear a license plate on your back to hunt deer? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Oh, yeah. When I was a teenager in Michigan and Wisconsin, you had to have these big tags on your back. They were just like a license plate. Um, okay. And then Michigan got rid of them before Wisconsin, but Wisconsin got rid of them about 10 years ago. No way. Yeah, That's there crazy. was only, at that time, only I think Wisconsin and Massachusetts had back tags. All other states had already gotten rid of them. Hmm. Okay. Um. Yeah, so that would be a bummer to have a big old tag on your back. What's it matter? Uh, I, I mean, it's just a number, an ID number. So yeah. conservation can ID you with the binoculars yeah. from far away. Oh, I hated yeah. it. <laughs> You're trying to be quiet in the woods, and then this thing, you lean against a tree, and it goes crinkle, crinkle against the tree. <laughs> happened all the time. Yeah. I, had, I knew someone that forgot his, and he got fined. I mean, it was like, it was like $600 fine, and he Whoa. couldn't hunt for three years. Wow. No way. Yeah. There's some places um, that I hunt that they make you wear orange even during archery season because other activities going on. And that always annoys me, but I mean, it's not like the deer notice it. It's just other people. So what's the big deal, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, but when you're doing archery, you don't, uh, I don't know, at least me, I don't, I don't want to be like some things sticking out in the woods. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but Sam, so I wanted to have you on to talk about hunting and specifically I want to get your, um, your take on a couple things, right? Like, um, as you mentioned, people always think you're a vegan. Um, we here in Michigan, and I'm sure you too in Wisconsin, you have a very large goose population. Um, both me and you harvest wild rice. Um, only there's way more rice where you are. And last time I checked, Michigan has the biggest population of geese in the country. Wow. And um, what I want to talk about is how goose hunting actually helps restore wild rice habitat. And I know I've personally had this conversation with you in the past. I just want other people to hear your take on it. So one thing, Clay, real that. quick, are you are you talking like Canadian geese specific yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. snow Can, geese yeah, or what? No, no, Canada oh, geese. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, Canada geese are more of like a subarctic bird and they like low cropped grass or short vegetation. And they have repopulated or populated the northern United States in, to an extent that they hadn't previously. So, like, if we go back 100 years, there was not a lot of geese breeding in the upper Midwest. Um, and, you know, they're herbivores and they eat a lot. And one pair of geese can have 16 babies. And you have 16 geese on a bay in a small lake with wild rice. And they can annihilate it. And, of course, we see this in a lot of places. Um where we harvest rice and also you know um since european settlement they've gotten rid of you know 90 percent of the wild rice waters in wisconsin and and more a larger percentage than that in michigan and so if you want to restore any of these bodies of water um then you have to seed in the rice and it's nearly impossible to seed in a lake rice on a lake um that are, has geese so if you have 20 acres of rice a couple pairs of geese can't destroy 20 acres of rice. They can destroy five. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're trying to establish it from scratch, like it's been, you know, eliminated by people and trying to bring it back, um, the geese are not going to let you do that. Um, so uh, our normal goose hunting season isn't really set up well for like shooting the geese in May when they're having their babies. But really, mm -hmm. that's what's required. Um, and, and, and during restoration projects, they're sometimes getting permission to do this because it's just yeah. impossible without it. Um, but you know, here, here is a place where, um, the normal, 
uh, in responsible interaction between hunters and gatherers in their environment um, can come into play because no one's proposing we get rid of Canada geese or make them extinct. It sure would be nice to be able to hunt them to get them out of a couple areas for a few years so that we could establish wild rice on some bodies of water. I have a couple different bodies of water that I've been working on trying to reestablish wild rice in, and it's it's pretty hard with the geese. And also, surprisingly, with deer. White-tailed deer love to eat wild rice, when it's, and so do elk, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have one lake I planted rice in, and I went to check on it, and the deer were an eighth of a mile from shore in water three feet deep. There's no way they could stand there swimming around eating the wild rice. Um, and, and there's also a lake North of me here in an area that has elk or not a lake, but a, a river. Um, and, um, I was fishing, I come around a bend in June and there's four elk up to their necks eating wild rice. And before that, I was like, why is all this wild rice coming down the river? Cause they're uprooted plants were just coming down the river. One after another, I come around the corner, there's four elk just chowing on the rice. So no at that vulnerable stage, it's really tender and the herbivores love it. So you're talking floating leaf stage, right? Um, yeah, or, or early emergent stage. Okay, because I was going to say, um, for most of our listeners, they're probably not going to be aware of the life cycles of wild rice. So could you lay that out for people? Yeah, so wild rice starts as an underwater plant for a short while. Then the leaves reach the surface and they have a floating stage for three to five weeks where they float on the surface of the water and then they, and then they slowly will produce a standing stem. So mm -hmm. it's in that tender floating stage that they're very visible to geese and other animals, uh, herbivores and, and really tender and, and, and they wildlife goes crazy for it. Wow. I can't believe the deer are eating wild rice while they're uh, swimming. That's hilarious. Yeah. I, uh, that's pretty cool. Was, wouldn't have believed it. You know, I wouldn't have guessed it until I saw it. That's so funny. Um, so as far as other plants, though, are concerned, like um, I'm just trying to basically draw draw a uh, a map here for people to understand that like humans kind of have an obligation to do both hunting and gathering. And, and we've done so much damage already to the world that we kind of owe it to the world to kind of do both like foraging, uh, getting rid of invasive species on the landscape, um, but also hunting does help with a lot of that too, you know, because deer preferentially will eat like native plants and like they don't know how to eat invasives yet, you know, things like that. So do you have any other ideas of like conservation through hunting or foraging habitat? I got one thing about that though, Clay, and I just wanted to kind of throw it out there. And we say invasive, but how long does it have to be on the landscape to be considered native versus invasive? Right. A lot mm -hmm. of things were bought Especially here. You know what I'm saying? So at what point do we just work with something rather than just call it invasive and say, okay, how can we utilize this or, or manage this so it's a resource where it doesn't kill other resources off, but still yeah. be, is a, a, a part of the landscape? Because, I mean, think about how many things were introduced here that we consider native and how many things we don't. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I feel like um, once a, a, a new plant is really well established, you have to just decide, okay, it's here. We're not getting rid of it, but how do we manage it? Um, mm -hmm. uh, but we, I, I guess, you know, people still <laughs> have a perception that we'll consider them invasive forever, but maybe in 5,000 years, we'll change our minds and just call them. <laughs> um, but, um, so as far as, uh, uh, you know, the, the effect that, that, um, you know, hunters can have on the foraging landscape, um, you know, especially in areas where you have a lot of agricultural land and then small isolated hardwood woodlots. It's like you have in a lot of Southern Michigan, a lot of Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, um, the, 
these places often are pretty good for native plants, but deer preferentially eat certain species to the point where they're just completely eliminated from a lot of these woodlots. So uh, I worked on a study actually of vegetation uh, back in the 90s, and we can see that, uh, you know, things like bluebead lily, trillium, uh, trout lily, deer feed on these things really, really heavily, mayapple. Um, and so if you have high deer densities, for example, your deer will just keep eating mayapple leaves. They won't store up enough energy to actually bloom and you won't actually get any fruit. Uh, trilliums, same thing. It doesn't kill a trillium when the deer eats that trillium top, but it does grow back smaller. And then the next year, smaller and then smaller and then smaller. And eventually it will die. And so the density of a lot of these uh uh, spring ephemeral plants that are good for foragers, but that deer highly prefer is like plummeted in a lot of these isolated woodlots. Um, and uh, hunters can have a really important role here in keeping the deer population lower, getting good food out of it, but also allowing these plants to thrive. Things like um, uh, carrion flower, which is, you know, delicious shoots. That plant is so sensitive to deer and deer absolutely love it. Um, false Solomon seal and Solomon seal. The list is actually quite long. If humans like it as a vegetable, deer probably like it too, unless it's really spicy. Mm -hmm. Kind of a good general rule. Um, so, yeah, you, you mentioned that, but um, that comes on the heels of uh, did you see the latest news in Michigan? We have about 30,000 less deer harvested than they, they had wanted this year. And um, there's, they're basically just um, freaking out here in my state. You know, the the officials at the DNR are kind of like, I don't know what to do. They were begging people to shoot does this year. And um, that that segues me into another thing. You preferentially like to shoot does. And uh, I'm assuming that's because you like the taste of it. But also, there's got to be some conservation in mind for that, right? Well, both things. And we have the same problem in Wisconsin. Not nearly as, uh, you know, this year, not nearly the the kill of deer that they wanted. Um, and we, of course we have the people that want infinite deer um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and they want no predators around. Um, but I do like the taste of does better than bucks. Um, you, you know, and I have a cookbook from 1903 and it says that the time to eat bucks is from July through the 1st of October. And the does is after the 1st of October. And my experience with my friends that live on the, um, bad river reservation eating deer harvested various times a year is that bucks do taste a lot better in late summer and early fall but when they start losing weight around the rut they their flavor goes way down um and they're not all i'm not saying they're inedible i've, I've had a few that were inedible i i shot two in my life that i was like this is terrible i am forced feeding this to myself yeah. and most <laughs> experienced hunters have had one or two experiences where they shot a bad tasting buck that they didn't want to eat. I have never shot a bad tasting doe that I didn't want to eat. So um, for me, when I'm hunting, I what I I do a lot of tracking. And what I prefer is if I find a, a tracks of a doe with two fawns, I'm like, that's my best chance to get meat. And it's the best meat. That's <laughs> who I'm following. I only time that I follow the track of a big buck is if it's the only fresh track I see. And I have a, a, a rule when I'm tracking deer, I say, Deer know where deer are and deer go where deer are. That's my mantra. So it doesn't matter what deer you follow. It's going to lead you to other deer. Yep. Um, so if I follow a big buck, that buck is going to lead me to does every time if I follow it long enough. Um, but I just, uh, I shot a really bad tasting buck as my, actually my second deer I ever shot in my life. It took me years to recover from my disgust of venison from the 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 first buck i ever shot that was in 1995 
In 2004, I shot another bad tasting buck. And at that time, I had shot two does uh, that year. And I, I was out hunting for a buck. I'm like, I want to get a buck. You know, everyone I work with is like, you know, thinks bucks are cool. Every, every hunter has experienced this. You know, there's the, there's the social pressure to get a buck. And I think it's ingrained. When you see a big antler deer, you're like, oh, look at him. He's huge. You get all excited, you know. And so I was out hunting for a buck. And I was on this public land and I shot this, you know, not fantastic buck, but it was a seven pointer. And, you know, these public lands, the bucks get shot out, you know, often young. So this might have been the biggest buck around and he was running pretty hard because he had a lot of does to service. And that deer, I took it home and it had no fat on it, like not one trace of fat on it. Like it would have mm-hmm. died probably that winter. Um, and it's worth it, I guess, if he fathers 25 fawns that fall, it's worth dying for it, you know. But there was not a trace of fat on its body. And that meat was just horrendous. <laughs> and after that, I was like, I'm kind of done with this buck thing. Like, I don't, I don't need it. I don't need it. <laughs> and it was, um, it was weird because two years later, I was hunting opening day and I had a spot very well scoped out. And I was like, the deer, are gonna, they seem to come here in the morning and or the evening and they took this path out of these hemlocks there's this isolated apple tree at an old homestead i had permission to hunt there and i set up you know hunker down under this white pine in about three in the afternoon a doe and two fawns came i shot i shot the doe and she fell very close to me the fawns ran down the hill towards the apple tree and i just was waiting because they often will come back well five minutes later i'm like oh they're coming back they're coming back and so I, I get my gun up, I get ready, and here comes up the hill is uh, a, a big 10-pointer and two fawns. <laughs> and, and I say fawns, you know, for the listeners who don't hunt, the fawn is just like what you see that's a small deer. It's not like a little baby spotted deer. Yeah. It's a seven-month-old deer, you know, and I know you guys know that, but, but a lot of people don't like to say fawn. They like to say yearling, which is not – it's not really a yearling until it's a year old. Um, <laughs> and uh, so um, – so the, the fawns come up the hill and I'm like, kind of the crisis. What, what do I shoot? What do I shoot? And then I shot one of the fawns and, um, and the deer kind of scattered and, and, um, and then there's a 10 pointer and I bigger deer than I ever shot in my life. And there's a fawn. And I just remember it happened real fast. And I was thinking, you know, I only, I only have, cause I shot twice at the doe. I shot her once. And then she came over close to me and stood there. I shot her again and she fell. I didn't realize I'd hit her the first time but I hit her with both shots, like an inch apart. So I had one, I had one bullet left and there's a 10 pointer and a fawn. And um, I was like, the 10 pointer started running right towards me, like directly towards me on the trail that I was kneeling on. Um, And I followed it with my, in my sights. And it got about eight feet from me, saw me, his eyes kind of jumped off his head and it kind of ran off the side. And I was like, okay, thank God. I don't have to shoot this ugly, big, nasty tasting buck and then i shot the fawn and then i afterwards i realized i was like i just passed up a 10 pointer to shoot a fawn and it was like i was like i guess i've made it you know <laughs> like and i remember i wanted my meat to taste good and it's like i had enough meat i didn't need this 10 pointer um yeah. and then the following year i had a similar experience with the biggest deer biggest buck i've ever seen while hunting not just similar in that this this buck came over by me and I was like, I'm not shooting a giant buck. I'm I'm not. I'm not gonna force myself to eat one of those. Mm-hmm. Um and I just let it walk. And um yeah, I've shot a few bucks since then, 
um, when I didn't have any meat, oh, and I thought this might be the only deer I see. But I always preferentially shoot antlerless deer. No. Yeah, I always fill doe tags first, and then I chase the big buck just as a, you know, a, a pursuit of uh, trying to see how big of a deer I can get. And what's crazy is I pass up. Clay gets mad. He, him and I talk about it, but like I pass up a stupid amount of deer in hopes that I'll see a bigger one or that I'll, I'll get get on the tracks of one and actually isolate one, and then I <laughs> never do. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is Wisconsin thinking about doing the um, earn a buck program? You know, because like that would be kind of cool. I think honestly, um, I don't know why we haven't heard more about it here in Michigan, but um, you know, you have to shoot a doe in order to shoot a buck. A large section of the state that has a very high deer density had that for about 20 years, and people got pissed, did not like it. Hmm. So they quit that about 10 years ago. Um, no way. Yeah, yep. Uh, so the whole southwestern portion of the state along the Mississippi River had that program for quite a while. Wow. Um, that, uh, that seems like a shame. It seems like that would be kind of a cool program that would actually bring a lot more meat to maybe like people don't want to have their dough they could just donate it or something i don't know you know but um i i am excited to talk to you about another subject that we talked about last time i talked to you on the phone which was um wolves um we we just uh talked to i don't know if you know uh pat durkin is yeah mm -hmm. he's yeah, yeah. so far from me okay well we had pat durkin on a couple of weeks ago we haven't released that uh episode yet but it'll be coming out soon and we talked to him about Hunter's perception of wolves versus the actual numbers of wolves in Wisconsin. And um, and he said that essentially every hunter imagines there's about like 40,000 wolves ranging the landscape, but that it's actually not that true. There's not really that many wolves. And um, you said the last time I was talking to you on the phone that you like hunting deer in areas where there's wolves. So Absolutely. I would love to I would love to have you elaborate on that. Absolutely. Well, one thing is deer are, or wolves are professionals, you know, they know where the deer are. Okay. So if you are in the woods enough to know where the wolves are and you follow them, you will find deer. I mean, they're not wasting their time where there aren't deer. If you've ever tried to catch a deer with your, with, without a gun, like with your bare hands, you realize it's pretty hard. So even if you could run a lot faster and you had sharper teeth, like still wolves have to be really good and they can increase their chances by finding where there's good deer densities. So um, I happen to hunt uh, in a couple areas of public land I hunt, you know, for many years. And one of them uh, has wolves. Um, when Wisconsin opened its wolf season, all the wolves in this area were killed out. Um, the, um, as far as I know, there was no wolves in our county for about five or six years. Um, and we probably had 40 to uh, 70 in the county before that. Mm -hmm. um, and we're back up to, you know, there's a few packs in our county now. And um, I hunt an area where the wolves frequent, and it's one of my absolute pleasures to hear wolves howl while I'm hunting. But if you find where the wolves are hunting, the deer behavior is completely different. Um, and one is they move a lot more um, because, or they move more during the day. Wolves are hunting more at night, not exclusively at night. And uh, if, if deer are browsing particularly, they have to fill their rumen a lot of times to get enough calories. So they're going to be feeding all day long in areas where there's wolf activity. Um, and although I always hear people say, if wolves come through and hunt an area, they clear all the deer out. Like, what do you think they do? Do they migrate to Kansas? Like, they don't clear the deer out. The deer run around. 
You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like they're going to, the, the, it's not like the deer can go somewhere that the wolves can't go, you know, like, oh, they go to this swamp real far away, the magic swamp, but the deer, the wolves can't go. <laughs> no, they just move around and they do find, you know, different cover. But I have found that the deer are very active. And also when they're dealing with wolves day after day after day and hunters, not very much. I mean, I hunt in a place where I might be the only hunter that a deer is going to see the whole season, you know? And so there's like, oh, this person. And they don't really like people, but it's like, it's not a wolf, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're not as wary of people. They're worried about wolves. They don't want to run away from you because if they run, they're afraid they're going to get scared to where a wolf is hiding. Um, and you can kind of see this in their behavior. And they, um, so anyways, um, last year I shot two deer, um, two does, and both were in areas with very heavy wolf activity, like, almost exactly at the time that I saw them. Like one of them, there was fresh wolf tracks. I, I think the wolves scared this group of deer toward me. Um, and then uh, the other one, I was following wolf tracks into an area where I know there's a lot of deer feeding activity. Um, and that's what led me to the set of tracks that I then followed to the, the deer that I shot. So yeah, I really like to hunt where the wolves are. Um, and they're, they're really good at finding deer. They're, 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 they know how to read the landscape um, and they'll lead you to thick brush. You know, the hunters don't like to hunt in thick brush. Well, most of them, but uh, that's where the wolves go because that's where the deer are, and that's where mm -hmm. the deer move during the day. Thick that's brush. <laughs> Never thought about yeah. that like that before, but yeah. So um, one of the yeah, things yeah. I wanted to ask you is, I saw, and I don't know, did I, did you actually get out a lot this season, or were you too busy? I saw you did a post. I think it was on TikTok or something where your kids went out and actually harvested a deer and you said you're too busy. You were like building maybe a, a root cellar or something. Yeah. Well, my son shot a, a, a deer during the youth hunt, the early youth hunt. Um, and then I hunt, I, I shot one opening day, but I went four other days, did not get another deer this year. So I didn't hunt as much as I normally do, but I got out, you know, a, a fair amount. Okay. Yeah. I saw, I saw your kid got one though. And I thought that was really cool. And that was the first time I actually discovered that you did hunt was through, okay. through that TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was a TikTok. Well, no. maybe whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. My, 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 my daughter uh, shot one last year. Um, and last year, the last day of season, I took both of my kids because they just took hunter safety. I took them to this kind of wolf area where I shot two deer last year and my daughter shot one. Um, and uh, my son was just too nervous. He had a great chance to shoot one. Uh, and he was just shaking is that he had to get that buck fever thing out. Yeah. So, uh, he, he was not ready. He was not mentally ready. Um, uh, but this year, uh, we didn't see as many deer opening day and they kind of, they, they fizzled out, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the quite the, um, patience that I did. Yeah. Um, so deer, um, makes up a lot, a lot of the meat in your diet, but, um, what other, what other kind of like small game or things are you eating on a regular basis? Well, um, lately we've been hunting snowshoe hares because there's no snow and the mm. snowshoe hares are white. So only a couple times <laughs> a decade, do we get a window like this? Um, so we went out new year's Eve, which is my wife's birthday. And she, she, I'm blessed. She likes to hunt. We go rabbit hunting. This is kind of a tradition. That's her choice to go for her birthday to go rabbit hunting. So we went for snowshoe hares, and um, we got two. Um, but uh, the spot we went to doesn't have the. It's not a great spot. Um, 
because closer to home. But then a few days before that, the day after Christmas, we went up to the Barrens where we picked blueberries, where not a lot of people know, but when you get jack pines of a certain age, like seven to 15 years old, oh boy, the snowshoe hares can reach unbelievable densities in that, especially when you get it mixed with hazelnut, blueberry, um, and, and, and maybe some green alders or something. And you'll just get incredible densities of snowshoe hares. So we got nine of them. Um, and it's not fair when they're white and it's snowy, (laughs) they're like invisible. They're like ghosts. You're like, I think I just might've seen one for a flash of a second. I don't know. And you know, you just can't spot them, but when they're white and the ground is Brown, then the tables are turned. You can actually see one and follow it. And, um, uh, yeah, so the hunting's easier and you know, they're about one and a half times the size of a cottontail. So you get nine of them. That's a pretty good amount of meat. Yeah. Yeah. I have never successfully shot a snowshoe hare, uh, and I'm sure you know this, but we don't have them in the Lower Peninsula. Um, they, they I didn't exist. know that. Oh, okay. So you don't have any in the Lower Peninsula? I, I'm pretty positive there's not any except for maybe the very uh, top county uh, huh. next to the yeah. UP. But um, I've gone, actually, specifically to hunt snowshoe hares in the UP, and, um, you know, snow everywhere. And like you said, um, you, you just you're looking around walking for hours and you're like, where are these things? You know, I'm, I'm literally seeing the ground is covered with their tracks, covered with poop, but I don't see anything. And uh, <laughs> so what, what's a good tip for that? How do you, how do you find a snow? Well, okay. So here's my, here's my thing about uh, snowshoe hairs. We, so we divide rabbit cover into three kinds. Okay. Number one, two, and three, number one cover is a place that you can't get them out of. They're safe, like a woodchuck. Okay. Yeah. Snowshoe hares don't use that. Cottontails do. Snowshoe hares mm-hmm. do not go in holes in the ground. Okay. Number two cover is where there's thick, they feel safe, and they're not going to move until you get close to them and flush them out. Right. So that's usually where you're going to kick out cottontails. Snowshoe hares will use that. And when they're in that kind of cover, they will move just like a cottontail. They'll wait till you almost step on them and then pop out. And then there's a number three cover, loose cover. Right. And this is where they're feeding. And they, um, they may just, you know, be sitting out in the open. And if they see you, they're going to leave, right? Kind of like deer. Now, snowshoe hares will live where there's only this loose, what I call number three cover, loose cover. And um, cottontails won't. They need that tight, heavy, thick, dense cover to live there. And so if you're hunting snowshoe hares and all you have is this kind of loose cover, you have to understand their behavior that they are probably just sitting out exposed because they feel safe. They're white and they're just, they're looking at you when you, when you walk around and they take hop, 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 hop. And they're just staying 30 yards from you and you can't see them. And so some people's eyes are good enough to learn to spot that. But in that situation, really it's best to have two or three people and do like mini drives where one person sits in the densest cover, somebody might do a circle around it to try to flush them towards that dense cover. Um, or if you have fresh snow, you can track them. They'll go in a circle, about a, a quarter mile circle. Um, or look for the different type of cover. Look for that really dense cover. Like the best thing is if a spruce tree or a white pine falls and it's surrounded by that loose cover, there's going to be food and population in the tracks and the turds will tell you there's snowshoe hairs around but they're going to like to sit in that fallen top that unusually dense patch of cover or maybe it's a patch of cedars on a hillside where there's a little bit of sun it's just real dense or or maybe it's young balsam fir and then they may act like cottontails 
and then just pop out of there. You might get a running shot when they're coming out of that cover. Um, but it's, it's, I like to do snowshoe hare hunting with a partner and preferably two people. If you mm-hmm. get, if you get, if you get, you know, um, three or uh, three or more people, it gets a lot easier to get them to move. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the best tip I can give you. But if you get those periods when there's no snow <laughs> and they're white, go out. This would be your best, your best hunting. I mean, that's literally right now. We have zero snow on the ground. And I'm sure, you know, that place that I've gone hunting a couple of times is three hours north of me. So I could, I could easily get there. It's right Let's by the go. bridge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, it's, it's worth it. I mean, I mean, it's like, it's, it's so much easier to find them and i know how the frustration you see tracks everywhere and you're like there must be two per acre and i've walked around for an hour and a half and i haven't seen one like how (laughs) is this happening but you go back to the same place when there's no snow on the ground and it's like magical you're like there's little white ghosts flying around all over the forest Hmm. wow that's awesome and then um they they taste pretty good right compared to like um cottontail A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV. I like cottontail a little bit better. They're different. So mm. snowshoe hair reminds me of turkey dark meat in flavor, but it's dry mm. like turkey breast. Mm. Really? Um, huh. uh, cottontail is uh, a little kind of a toned down version of that, like somewhere between turkey and chicken, you know, and a little bit more tender meat. So I, I like them both, but they're, they're different. I, I prefer cottontails slightly by the flavor, though. Okay. Do cottontails and um, snowshoe hares ever um, interact in the same environments? Oh yeah. There's a lot of places I hunt where there's both. Um, wow. And one pl- thing I would tell you about them is that there's a certain type of cover that snowshoe hares love and cottontails hate. And that's mm-hmm. like this moderately dense cover, uh, especially with like Aspen poles or something. Uh, it's just not thick enough for cottontails. They don't like that, but snowshoe hares, like, they have to sit out. And sometimes they sit in groups, like two or three will sit together and they kind of, it seems like they watch different directions and they'll be, they'll just, you know, be like in the open cottontails they don't do that so much um but uh this where the snowshoe hares don't go and the cottontails do is in the brambles snowshoe hares will eat blackberries or raspberries if they're isolated but they won't go into a thicket and i think it has to do with the way that they move i think blackberries and roses and stuff catch on them by the way they run and you know cottontails like to kind of duck around and squirm under stuff snowshoe hares don't do that so um, they almost they, they avoid like those blackberry thickets or, you know, multi-floor rows that you would be great for cottontails. Snowshoe hares will avoid that stuff. Um, mm. And then there's spirea snow caves or willow caves where dense young willows or spirea get knocked down by snow. And you never know what's going to pop out because there's areas have both cottontails and snowshoes. They both love that. Hmm. Wow. Luke, are you doing any uh, rabbit hunting by you? I don't think I'm doing much of anything right now, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I'm saying, uh, have that, you? do I, I do a little bit, not much. Normally when I'm upland game hunting, if I'm, if I'm upland hunting and I happen to, you know, I'll, I'll always go through like wood lines and, and kick brush piles and stuff and try and flush rabbits out, but I'm not going out of my way to get them. Um, 
you know, like, you know, I'm obsessed with deer. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, uh, for you, Sam, uh, Luke is, he's like a deer obsessed guy and I'm always the one trying to talk him into hunting small game. And he's like, why, what's the point? No, that's not true though. But like, <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to do was actually get together with you and take like recurves and longbows and just go have a small game bonanza and just like see how much small game we could take in a day or two, but maybe, maybe next year. Yeah. Maybe next year. Um, so, uh, Sam, as far as, uh, other small game though, like when you're, when you're out harvesting, uh, like cottontails or whatever, do you ever see grouse? And, and I'd love to know, you know, because let me just backtrack for a minute. You seem to me like, like a complete woodsman. Like, so I, I know most people think of you, like we said in the beginning, like a forager, but to me, you seem like a woodsman. Like you seem like you would just know exactly where to go for each species and like how to find them. Um, one of the things that I haven't gotten into, but I would love to in the coming years would be like grouse hunting. And, um, you know, those things seem to just blend in like, like the snowshoe hares, like they just seem invisible until you're right on them. And then, um, I've also noticed that you they're they're only like ever visible to you when you're doing some other type of hunting. <laughs> um, does that ever happen to you? Well, it happens to me a lot. We have the endless the, we call it the, the 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 grouse dilemma. Okay, when we're mm -hmm. hunting, I prefer to hunt snowshoe hares with a twenty-two. I'd rather yeah. shoot two of them with a twenty-two than three with a shotgun because the shotgun damages the meat. I get I like the nice clean shot with a twenty-two. Mm -hmm. um, but then I can't legally shoot a grouse with a twenty-two. And even if I wanted to break the law, it's not very easy, right? You know, so um, so there's times where I go out and I'm like, you know, this is a good grouse spot. I'm bringing the shotgun and I'm, you know, and I'm going more for grouse, but I'll see it. I'll shoot a rabbit if I see one. Um, if I'm going exclusively, for, if I'm really heading out for snowshoe hares intentionally, then I then I bring the 22 and then I always see a bunch of grouse. Um, <laughs> but um, the day after Christmas, I shot one grouse um, and that's because. Uh, my son was kind of standing in a spot and we were trying to flush the rabbits to him. And so, um, you know, I, I brought the shotgun in case I saw you, you can shoot at a running rabbit with a shotgun, um, you know, and I didn't end up shooting a snowshoe hare the first round, but I did get a grouse. And, and then uh, and, then, and then I switched to the 22 for the end of it because I was like, OK, I already got something. Then then I'll just go for the cleanest meat I can get. But yeah, that's, yeah. um, I have a friend who's great at grouse hunting and he'll be able to predict, you know, where we're going to see them before we do. Um, and, um, I, I feel like I'm fairly good at finding grouse when I'm actually looking for grouse, but in October, I think of as the peak grouse time, I'm usually foraging more than hunting. You know, mm. I switch to hunting more when the snow is on the ground mid November, and then I focus on hunting. Nice. Um, so, um, what other, uh, I remember, let, let me actually just uh, backtrack to a story you told me a long time ago. You had, uh, we were at the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering, and this was many years ago, and you were telling me about catching, uh, 13 line ground squirrels with like a gallon jug. And I, oh, I wanted yeah. to, and I never asked you if you actually did it, but was this just like a theory or is this something you- No, no, this is not a theory. This is, this is a very well-established practice. In fact- um, the last time I did it, I was camping with, it was like a family camping trip and there's a bunch of kids, you know, my nieces and nephews and, uh, there's a ball field and, and, and there's a bunch of 13 line ground squirrels. And I said, how fast do you think I can get one of those 13 line ground squirrels? And, um, I don't remember what times, how, you know, how long they, they guessed it would be, 
but I, I got an empty milk carton and filled it up. And um, I think, I think, it, I think it was like, like 13 seconds from the time they said, go, I had one in the milk carton in 13 seconds. So wow. um, like when I was a kid, we did this as like a hobby because it's free, you know, you just need an empty milk carton and some water. <laughs> and um, we would catch 10 or 15 in like an hour sometimes more often we catch three or four and get bored with it. But mm -hmm. um, so the key is um, you need to, uh, so just take a full gallon and then find a 13 line ground squirrel um, that is standing out. Like don't go up to a burrow, but actually chase one down the burrow and at full speed. And when they go down that burrow about, you know, 15, 20 inches down, they have a little side tunnel that's where they turn around. So they go in and they just wait and then they turn around and they, they'll come back out, you know, 10 minutes later, is it safe or five minutes later? But um, if they're deep in their burrow and you put water in the burrow, it's never going to flood them out because they, they don't build burrows in a place where you can, the burrow can be flooded out in, in normal circumstances. Um, but you, that, that, that turnaround hole, you can easily hit with water. And the moment you hit it, they come straight out. So you just hold the milk carton upside down over that and you compress the sides of it with your hands and the water rushes down and you just hold it there. They will come right out and go straight into the milk carton. And you might think they won't fit in the milk carton, but in all the years I've done this, we only had one ever that couldn't fit in the milk carton. It was like the ultimate giant 13 line ground squirrels. But if you were doing this with a bigger ground squirrel, like Franklin's ground squirrel, you probably want to just cut the rim of the milk carton a little broader, <laughs> but I've probably caught more than a hundred that way in my life. Um, and ground squirrels <laughs> taste pretty good. That's pretty good. I've always heard of uh, taking, a, taking a two by four and putting it on a bucket and putting like, uh, um, you know, a couple gallons in a five gallon bucket and put a handful of seeds on top and they'll jump in thinking they can get the seeds and then they just drown in the, in the water and you can catch, I had a buddy get like 15 of them in a day doing that too. Yeah. That method works very good for getting rid of flying squirrels too. No like kidding. if you had some that were living in your roof, for example, and you needed to get rid of them because they were wrecking your insulation or something. I love flying squirrels, but occasionally you need to get rid of flying squirrels. Um, they just, in fact, a five gallon bucket with water in it with like eight inches of water. We just call those flying squirrel killers because in our house, we're like, be careful. Don't leave buckets of water like that, you know, uh, or by the sugar shack because you're likely to wake up and just find a flying squirrel dead in it in the morning. Wow. Really? Yeah. They just, they just like go in a five gallon bucket and then they can't get out. And, you know, <laughs> uh, have you ever had um, a flying squirrel drown in some maple sap then? Yes. Many times. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a reg, it's a regular occurrence for people that do maple syrup with buckets. It's a regular occurrence to have a, you know, I would say regular, like it's every day. But like, yes, every, this has happened to pretty much everybody who does maple syrup on a large scale with buckets is sometime they come out to empty their sap and there's a drowned flying squirrel in a sap bucket. Oh. No way. <laughs> yes. Yes way. Um, and those are obviously, uh, that's not a game animal, so um, you right. couldn't eat them. But um, I'm sure people would have, maybe, or are they like the size of a mouse? I've never actually even seen a flying squirrel like in in person. I've only seen them flying like right as it's getting dark hmm. they're like the size of a chipmunk i mean they're not really you know worth cleaning up for eating yeah i mean okay. 13 line ground squirrels are a lot bigger and they're like the margin of like i wouldn't go for anything smaller than a 13 line ground squirrel yeah <laughs> um I, I i was just re i was just talking to somebody about this the other day but like um apparently genghis khan um came from an area that was so poor in the asian steppe that they had their clothing was made from 
mice skins sewn together because uh, they would kill they would kill and eat mice and then actually save and tan the little hides and, and sew them together to make uh, interesting. So, so people when they're hungry they'll they'll eat anything. I mean even even mice. You know. <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt that. I just haven't been that hungry. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um. So. Um, yeah, another another cool thing that, uh, or maybe not cool to you, but uh, another thing that I think is uh, fascinating is that you have a twenty-two bullet in your leg. Um, I, I would love, I would love to hear that story on the podcast if you're willing to uh, tell it to us. Yeah. So, okay, I got married <laughs> when I was eighteen. My ex-wife and I, for a while, right about the time we split up, when we were, oh, nineteen twenty, um, we were living in her parents' cottage. And there was this red squirrel that was getting into the roof of the house and, and waking me up at night. So I was trying to shoot the thing, you know? And so I had this loaded 22 by the door and then um, I would, you know, pop outside and try to shoot that squirrel and it would disappear into a hemlock tree or something. And then um, one day her parents came over and she said, you better put the gun away. My mom will be mad if the gun is out when she walks in the house. So I just took the gun and I pulled the clip out and I threw it in the case and put it in the closet. Well, I never pulled that one bullet out of the chamber. And um, I didn't know at that time that, you know, like three weeks later, my wife would leave me and then we were going to get divorced. And then and then that uh, four months later, um, I would be just moving into an apartment in Ashland and a friend would be driving me back and we would pick up all my stuff that was stored in the closet at this her parents old cottage. And um, so I had a 20 gauge and a 22 and uh, we threw those in my friend's truck. We came back to our apartment and then. Um, we sat down together um, on uh, uh, the the like one chair we had. It was like <laughs> like we were right next to each other, and um, uh, and it was like a, a chair we got out of the garbage. It was like a love seat, but we weren't really in love. Um, <laughs> and um, he was sitting right next to me, and um, I I picked the twenty. I had both guns on the floor. I picked the twenty gauge up and I checked to make sure it was unloaded, and then I cleaned it because um, in those days I used to clean my guns. And then um, uh, he said, do you mind if I check out your 22? And I remember that he had told me he had hunted before. So I thought he must have common sense with guns. So he picked up the 22, set it on his lap and pulled the trigger. And um, he was sitting right next to me. I mean, the barrel was just pointed right at my leg. So I don't know how many details you want of the story. So, but, uh, so he so shot at me at point blank range and it went into my right leg. It hit my femur. It um, shattered the top of the femur and then cracked it diagonally. And then the bullet continued and it hit the skin. And if you've hunted, you know, often, you know, bullets like to stop under the skin. It followed the skin around a little ways and then stopped. So it's under the skin, kind of on the inside of my right thigh, about four or five inches above the knee. And it's still sitting there. Um, one, I didn't have health insurance at the time. But two, I guess they don't generally remove bullets unless they're um you know at a place where they're likely to cause problems and a bullet under the skin on my thigh is not a problem so you know i, I it's still there <laughs> so every time you fly in an airplane you have to tell that story no, no. they've never said anything about <laughs> no. it i mean you know it's lead it's not magnetic yeah right. no, I know. <laughs> um so no one no one's ever asked me about it as far as getting on a plane you know you're but like the this. interesting thing was is, is how time slows down in a moment like this. Because when the gun went off, I was like, what was that? Oh, no, that was the gun going off. And then I was like, oh, no, I left the bullet in the chamber. I'm like, and then I'm like, why did he pull the trigger? 
And then I was like, I know it's irresponsible for me to have left the bullet in the chamber, but damn it, why did you pull the trigger? And then I was like, well, maybe it didn't hit me. And so I look, and I I didn't want to I didn't want to believe, you know. So I looked the way the gun was pointing, and I'm like, well, maybe there's a hole in the wall. Maybe hit the wall. And I'm like, I hope we don't lose our security deposit. We just moved in. <laughs> and then I looked, I like I couldn't see a hole in the wall. So I was like, huh, there's no hole in the wall. So I guess that bullet must be in my leg because it really is pointed right at my leg. I didn't want to look. So then I looked, I'm like, yep, it's pointed right at my leg. And I'm like, but I can't see a hole in my leg, no blood, nothing. And I'm like, so what happened? It doesn't hurt. And of course, all these thoughts, they took like two and a half seconds, you know, maybe three <laughs> seconds. I don't know. And then, but I just, it was like all time just slowed down. And then I looked at my leg and I was like, I saw the tiniest red dot. And I was like, oh, there's the blood. No denying it anymore, Sam. That thing is in your leg. And then I reached my hand down and I touched the little red dot where the blood was to like to see if it really was blood. And as soon as I touched it, this like wave of pain like through my leg. And it was like, and then I was like, you know, put my hand on my leg and I and I tried to, to step over to my mattress. I didn't have a bed, but I had a mattress on the floor. And um, and I was like, oh, you shot me. And he was like, yeah, right. Shut up. It's not even funny. I was like, <laughs> I know it's not funny. And I peeled my hand back and there was all this blood. And then he was like, OK, calm down. Just stay calm. Stay calm. I'll get you to the hospital. Just stay calm. And then he got me in the hospital. Drove, oh. me, drove 65 miles an hour down Ellis Avenue in Ashland. And I was like, hey. We could die here on Ellis Avenue, you know. And he said, "There's, it's dark out. There's headlights. No one has headlights on. I don't see anybody. If I see headlights, I'll slow down." I'm like, "Okay." So we got there, and, <laughs> and they don't really, they didn't really do anything, you know. Like you get there, and they're like, "Okay, there's a bullet in your leg." I mean, what do you, what do you do? Did they cast you know? it up or anything? Well, I got a brace, um, not a cast, but a brace. But you know, my my femur was sh- sh- broke all the way through, but it never came out of place. And at that time I was biking and running a lot. So I have a pretty massive leg and they said, you know, your muscle musculature and all your connective tissue will probably just hold that perfectly in place. So they just gave me a brace and wow. yeah, fine. <laughs> How long did it take to heal? And I know that you, um, you know, you continue to run to this day. So obviously it healed pretty good. Yeah. So that was September 21st. And I took that brace off at the end of November um and then i was walking pretty normally by like uh mid-february that's such a crazy story and uh, also (laughs) reflects uh how everybody should always um keep their finger off the trigger even if they think the gun's uh, you know completely devoid of bullets that's funny (laughs) and and always unload the one in the chamber Yeah. yeah treat every gun as if it was loaded be aware don't point the gun at people even if you think it's not loaded Etc. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's funny though. That's like the seventh person that I've met that that has a story that has either been shot by somebody or shot themselves. It. I guess it's more common than you think. I, I don't know. <laughs> if you're yeah, around them long enough, there's got to be at least one incident in your lifetime. Everybody has one. Yeah. Well, I have an uncle who accidentally shot himself in the head with a 12 gauge. Oh. Well, um, they were shooting snakes and uh to you know he shot a snake and then tried to smash the head with the butt of his oh, and no. the gun went off on impact and so it shot him in the head and oh is he alive well he he committed suicide later 
Um, oh. But he lived he lived through that, but it was pretty severe, you know, Man. pretty severe. Some, uh, and I have another friend who has a pellet from a pellet gun in his heart. <laughs> in his, in heart? his heart? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so he didn't do that himself. But as you know, people think, oh, it's just a pellet gun. Yeah. And somebody shot him in the chest with the pellet gun and it went through his chest right into its in the wall of his heart muscle. Wow. No way. That's scary. Man. So on that note, let's change it a little bit. Yeah, let's change subject. Let's, let's get brighter. Um, so I, one, one of the things I want to ask you, so you hunt, you forage. What is the best combination of the hunting and foraging that you put together that you like as a combination of two foods bring them together? Oh, um, you know, soup. I mean, I mean, that's not one, that's not one recipe, but, um, it's just like, you can take so many different forage foods and, you know, virtually any meat you have, you can make a great soup out of it. And, you know, it's just such an easy way. And, and, um, you know, people, uh, people are pretty accepting of soup. They're not, you know, so if I'm serving it someone, I say, Hey, try this soup. They can, they can take a tiny amount or a big amount. They can take a tiny amount and, and be like, oh, that's good. And then, you know, take more. But a really common recipe I like is like, so like squirrel, gray squirrel, most often. Um, take like two or three gray squirrels and cook them in enough water to cover them, but no more for a very long time till the meat slips off the bone. Then t- take all the meat off the bone. And then I'll, I'll cook wild rice with grated onion, or you could be finely chopped wild leek and then grated parsnip cooked with the wild rice. And then I'll fry those, uh, the, the wild rice, onion, parsnip mixture, like almost like a giant patty. So it's like gets crispy on one side and then flip it over and then stir it and like break it up. So there's like, there's the crispy chunks in there. And then I mix the meat in. So it's like sort of like a fried rice casserole. Mm-hmm. It's the way I would like to serve like squirrel. And squirrel is my favorite. I mean, if you want to get nitpicky, fox squirrels the best, you know. But that's like my favorite meat. There's there's very few animals when you clean them, they smell good inside. Squirrels <laughs> smell good inside, you know. Like if you actually cut the stomach, it, it it actually makes my mouth water. I'm like, hey, this smells like <laughs> smells like this smells like hickory nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and they're fat, like squirrel fat, and it's frying. It smells so good. It tastes so good. It's even mm-hmm. better than pork fat or bear fat. Nice. Sam, you said you like fox squirrels more than gray squirrels. That's funny because I, I've I've heard the opposite for most people. Like um I don't really have many fox squirrels in my area, so I've never actually shot one, but we eat a lot of gray squirrels and I'm hoping to make a southern Michigan trip to go shoot some fox squirrels this season. Um, but you like them better. Well, yeah, that's true, but I haven't had a fox squirrel since I was a teenager. No, oh, okay. we don't really have them up here, so so you know, maybe my memory is skewed there. I don't know, but mm. but as it, yeah, I remember that I like I thought fox squirrels were like the best. I, I think gray squirrels are distinctly better than red squirrels. I still will eat red squirrels, but gray mm. squirrels are distinctly better. Red mm. squirrel, I imagine, has got to taste a lot like uh, just like hemlock or pine or you know something like that because they eat so much of that stuff. Um, maybe faintly, but mm. I don't know. It's just it's just. It it doesn't t- strike me as piney, but it's not as it's just not as good as gray squirrels. Okay. Yeah, so um... it's a real fast method for cleaning red squirrels. So occasionally, if I'm 
especially when I'm getting sick of them causing problems, I'll just shoot a bunch of them and clean them very fast. It's like cleaning bluegills. And, you know, you have seven or eight of them. You make a good soup. Mm-hmm. Nice. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say, how do, how do you clean? Oh. <laughs> uh, how do you clean them, Sam? Oh, well, so I, I pinch them on the side. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll have like a, 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 a like a log or something, and I pinch them on the side and get like a flap of, of skin, and then I poke the tip of my knife through that flap of skin like into a piece of wood, and I kind of pull the side. Then I have an opening that's just large enough for two fingers to fit in, and I put my fingers in, and I pull in opposite direction, and I so I'm basically peeling to the head and peeling to the tail at the same time. Um, and my leverage is like the other side. So I'm not like holding on to the animal and squishing its guts and trying to pull the skin off. I'm just pulling skin. And mm-hmm. then when I get almost to the end, I have a little hatchet and I'll like chop, chop each foot, cut the tail with a knife, chop, chop the front feet, chop, chop the head. And like, that's it. It's clean. You know, yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's really, really fast. Um, and so like, like I can, I can clean 10 red squirrels like that. It takes me as much time as it took me to clean one gray squirrel, like when I was 14 and I, you know, <laughs> you know trying to skin them like you skin a deer um, and save all the skins, of course, because then I try to tan every hide when I was a kid. I, I don't keep all the red squirrel skins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, um, how do you how do you clean them, Clay? What's your method? Um, I For squirrels, I mean, essentially the same thing. I actually start by cutting off the legs and the tail or yeah. sorry, the hands, the hands and the feet and the tail. Um, and then I actually take a pair of shears and I'll just go completely around in a circle, like, um, and then I pull them both off. That's... And then, uh, when you, when you get to the head, cut the head off. And then I take those same shears and I just cut like through the rib cage straight down and cut all the guts away. And I'll grab the liver and the heart and, uh, that's it. It takes me about three minutes per squirrel. Yeah. I use tin snips and I cut the feet, hands, tail, head off, and then rip from the middle. And mm-hmm. then pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same method, just different uses, I guess. But it's always interesting to hear how other people do it. And yes, I do clean yeah. squirrels. <laughs> yeah, I and I, I I remember Sam, um, my first couple squirrels skinning them like a deer too, and, and being <laughs> like, thinking like this is not worth my time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So fox squirrels, why why do you think um? their habitat doesn't reach north, you know, cause like when I go to uh, Southern Michigan, I see so many fox squirrels. It's, um, it's actually kind of unbelievable. Uh, I was in Owasso, which uh, is by Lansing a few weeks ago. I kept taking my little dog on, you know, on walks. It was like Christmas trip down there to see the family. And um, I did not see a single gray squirrel, but I saw probably like 10 fox squirrels. Well, you know, I've noticed a lot of the large metropolitan areas in southern Michigan and northern Indiana and Ohio have only fox squirrels. And interestingly, um, that I don't know of any in Wisconsin like that, but there used to be a bunch. So like Madison, Wisconsin had only fox squirrels until about 1920. Um, wow. And then gray squirrels kind of took over. And that's kind of the, the history all over the range of fox squirrels. Um, but like like Ann Arbor, never seen a gray squirrel. Jackson, Michigan, I've never seen a gray squirrel. Only fox squirrels in those those places. Um, but, uh, so fox squirrels are more of a savanna squirrel. Um, and they seem to specialize more in large nuts, like walnuts, butternuts, um, shell bark hickory, they, uh, more than gray squirrels. I mean, um, if, if the only nut available is red oak, there's probably not going to be any fox squirrels, but there'll be gray squirrels in places where that's like the only nut available or the only like, um, large nut available. Uh, but yeah, I just think as, 
as the countryside, you know, the woodlots have grown denser and denser. I think it, <clears throat> excuse me, for whatever reason, that favors gray squirrels more. Hmm. Um, my grandmother in southern Michigan, <clears throat> when I was a kid, it was exclusively fox squirrels in the yard, <clears throat> never gray squirrels in the yard. But then we go in the woods behind the house or across the road, and then we would see gray squirrels in the woods. Okay. That makes a lot of sense then. So if they're more of a savanna type species, then they're uh, contrary to popular belief. There's like more forests, you know, closing in, not not these like open forests that used to exist. Um, then, yeah, I guess there would be more gray squirrels. Yeah, I mean, that trend is seen in all sorts of wildlife. I mean, the decline of bobwhite quails uh, mm -hmm. and cottontail rabbits in southern Michigan, southern Wisconsin, throughout most of the Midwest is directly related to that. And, of course, you could list 100 different plants that have become rare because of the forests closing in. And 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 birds, you know, whippoorwills, um, uh, grouse, you know, uh, same thing. Um, just we have a lot denser forests than we used to have. And but but that's probably due like to younger forests, right? That are growing a little bit more densely, or is that or is that because of uh, fire suppression? Is that because of uh, people just not managing the land like they used to? It's it's both um, fire suppression and this regrowth of of dense young woods. It's mm. both things. Probably more fire suppression. Um, like uh, you know, southern Michigan burned fairly regularly and had a lot of oak savannas or sparse oak woodlands that might mm. you know burn light ground fires every three to seven years and uh, that just doesn't happen anymore and so we have yeah. a lot of plants and animals adapted to that that are just disappearing yeah i know um the the land that the um, great lakes foragers gatherings on frog holler farm um he uh what's his name uh god i can't i, I can't think of his name right now uh, jeremy Jeremy, Jeremy was yeah. To, yeah. Jeremy was telling me that that whole land or all of Southern Michigan, you see, used to see these like land assessments, and they used to call them uh, open woods. And he said that that would, uh, that was their like terminology in the day for like a like kind of like a prairie setting, you know, like where mm -hmm. there'd be like sparse trees. And I just imagine like in my mind like that being like this really beautiful place that I just want to be in. <laughs> you know, it seems like very abundant both plants and animals. Um, and I've heard you talk about this in the past, but like that, that would be like a very uh, abundant ecosystem, correct? Like far more yeah. abundant than maybe we think. Cause like, uh, I know that there's this perception and like, when you get people into foraging, they think like, oh, I just want to go to the deep, dark woods, you know? And like, that's actually like surprisingly low in biodiversity. Yeah. Those fire maintained landscapes, um, sparse woodlands and oak savannas. Those are probably the best foraging environments in North America, whether they occurred in the Midwest or or in, in the South or even in California. I mean, where that landscape repeats itself, it's very biologically productive. And then there's a high portion of that productivity that's food plants. I mean, those are great foraging environments. And, um, you know, they naturally occur. But also, I mean, Native Americans were managing huge parts of North America through fire to create these optimum conditions for wildlife and for for plants. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, it's it's ironic that between like 1930 and 1970, there was so much emphasis on reforestation and saving forests. And not that that's not important, but that was when we had the opportunity to save these grasslands and savannas that were being destroyed at that time. In 1930, we had a lot of really nice grasslands and savannas left, and we ignored them until 
about 1970 and we're like, hey, maybe we should manage these a little bit. By that time, by the time we were on the ball, they were already mostly gone. Yeah. Um, that that's a that's like such a major bummer about like what what can we do? So like um there's a guy on Instagram that I follow. Um he's he's like from the south and he does a lot of prairie restoration stuff. Yeah, Kyle. Yep, Kyle. Okay. Um that that dude um is talking about how he'll just do burns and then all of a sudden like the seed bank is still in the soil and those flowers and all these plants will just start to show up. I mean, is that going to happen everywhere? What if you're what if you have like a woods that's been that way for 20 years and then you cut it all down and burn it? Is that does that have the potential to become a prairie ecosystem again or no? Um, it depends, right? So mm -hmm. it depends on the history of the specific site and how rapidly it's grown in. Um, some of the plants will have seeds that will be in the seed bank, others will not. Um, but uh there's a lot of places where that kind of management can still happen um to yeah. great benefit uh but you know it's expensive and it's difficult and there's a lot of decisions that need to be made and so there's not like one easy answer but if i owned a wood lot in southern michigan or southern wisconsin i would definitely be figuring out how to manage it appropriately with fire and with you know human caused disturbance because we can cut wood and do other things you know uh, to affect the same results mixing it with fire um, there's a local, uh, old Christmas tree farm right in downtown Traverse city. It's uh, at the grand Traverse commons. And, um, in the last couple of years, there's been this mega, uh, homeless camp. And one of the first things I noticed is that it used to be, it used to be that this, uh, it was completely unnavigable. You couldn't walk through this place and there was no sunlight to hit the soil. Uh, but since the homeless people have moved in, uh, they've taken, Taken every limb to use for fire that they can. So now the entire bottom of the um, the spruce forest is 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 open now, and you're seeing all kinds of plants emerging. And I <laughs> and I kind of been watching it for the last couple of years, and I'm like, this is amazing. You know, you're seeing. Um, uh, I saw a huge patch of clear weed spring up. You know, in there. <laughs> so, um, and and I just wanted to like, uh, I guess, mention that, that that can happen and um, by humans. And I, I noticed that humans have a great, when we do burn wood for fire, we we often preferentially choose those easy branches on spruces and uh, other evergreens. You know, everything we do on the landscape has an effect. And yeah. it's unfortunate that we have this idea that any human impact is bad mm -hmm. uh, because it really isn't true. Um, I mean, if we spend time in nature hunting and foraging, then we have a basis upon which we can judge how our activities are in fact affecting the environment. And a lot of times it's positive. And then yeah. we can to make our actions more positive, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Luke, I didn't know if you had any other questions and I don't want to take up too much of Sam's time here. So um, if, uh, if you don't Luke, then nope. I was going to ask. Just uh, uh -huh. Sam, we're, uh, where can people find you, find your books, find your classes, all that sort of stuff? and uh find you on social i'm not very active on social media but i do have a tiktok uh, uh following of about six hundred fifty thousand. so um oh my but, god um, yeah uh if you so it's well-fed wild on tiktok um i'm not very active on facebook i'm not sure what facebook is for yet i'm still <laughs> Me um but uh you know uh you can find information about my classes or my books on foragesharvest.com 
Order the books wherever is convenient for you. Support your local bookstores, whatever, if you're interested in my foraging books. I just, I don't know if I told you, Clay, I just won the National Outdoor Book Award for Best Field Guide of 2023. No, but it's not surprising. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. And, uh, but don't listen to me. Just get out in the woods. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, One more thing. What's your thoughts? I've seen a lot of recent posts and people talking about it and stuff popping up using AI to create foraging guides. Oh, yeah. I'm actually going to put out a video on that. Um, there is a number of AI foraging books, and they're like coming out like one, every few weeks, a brand new mm-hmm. one. Some of them, I, multiple ones with identical titles. And I, I didn't want to give them money, but somebody ordered one, looked at it, and then sent it to me. And um, it's terrible. Wow. It's absolutely horrible. I mean, I mean, there's some bad foraging books written by human beings, but I'm telling you, the computers have done a really bad job. <laughs> like, for example, one of them, they don't know the difference between um, a plantain, the banana like fruit and plantain, the lawn plant. So their account about plantain is actually a mixture of the two. Oh. And it's, <laughs> totally, it's totally nonsensical. And then they have like they have a link you can go to to get photographs because they wouldn't put actual photographs in the book. That would be too expensive. And you look at actual photographs and, and, and it has the scientific name of plantain, the lawn weed and then has a picture of plantain the banana relative in the genus musa totally unrelated um Whoa. their their picture for um choke cherry is a canada u oh my god i mean it's so bad and the worst part is the fake story because the, the 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 author's fake story or the author you know um the ai generated fake story about an imaginary person's uh, life story of how they got interested in foraging is so ridiculous it's worth reading just for the humor <laughs> it's clearly not a human being <laughs> uh, That's awesome. can you uh, give us an example of like what it says <laughs> oh um i'd have to open it's on my dresser i'd have to open it you but <laughs> Like, like, um, actually it's scary to me because I looked at the reviews online and nobody, so they started out with 800 positive reviews that were AI generated, right? Mm-hmm. But slowly Amazon deletes those. So then it goes down to like maybe 40 legitimate reviews, most of which were negative. None mm-hmm. of these negative reviews did the person say, it doesn't sound like a human being wrote this book. That scared <laughs> me. I'm like, you can't tell if it's written by oh, a computer. Wow. Just imagine wow. how it's going to get in 20 years from now. <laughs> oh, well, maybe hopefully the computers will get better, but hopefully they'll enact some 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 legislation. So right. when a book is written by a computer, it has to be, you know. So when we go to a bookstore, there are going to be signs that say books written by humans only. Right. You know, and when you buy a book, if it's not written by a human, it has to say that. Just like in the EU, genetically modified organisms have to be labeled as such. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I, I um, and I'm not even weighing in on that debate, but I think our books need to. We need to be told if we're consumers, whether it's a news article, uh, whether it's instructional vid- article, instructional video or a book, we need to be told if it's written by a human being or a computer. Right. Because, you know, yeah. I test every plant that I write about. I eat it myself. I guarantee you that chat GPT has never <laughs> eaten any of the plants it's writing about. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm scared for the future based on that stuff, but also kind of in some way, maybe like a little bit um, excited about the potential if it doesn't decide to enslave us all, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of hoping it tries to go that direction and then we have, or we're we forced to, to be John Connors and whatnot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, Sam, it's been 
a pleasure talking to you. I've uh, I've known you for a long time, and you're such a you're such a treasure to the foraging world in general. And I I really think people should know more about your hunting side. So I'm happy you came on to uh, tell us about it. Well, thanks for having me on. Always enjoy talking to you, and nice to meet you, Luke. Yep. Thanks for coming on. All right. See you next time. All right. Been a pleasure. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.